House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Now today we're going to get into uh, another kind of gangster, Whitey Bulger. And uh, we've got a renowned writer who's uh, spent a lot of time um, on the trial as well as he's written some pretty interesting books if you like uh, if, if you like kind of the, the gangster sort of world um, so joining us uh, author of Where the Bodies Are Buried and uh, uh, Whitey Bulger and the World That Made Him so we have TJ English thank you for being here my pleasure thanks for having me wow so you sat through the whole trial Oh, yeah, I sat through the trial, but I, I had followed the Bulger story for years leading up to that, tri uh, that trial. I wrote a book called Paddywhack, An Untold History of the Irish-American Gangster. And that was a kind of a sweeping history of the Irish-American underworld from the time of the Irish potato famine all the way to the end of the century. And I opened that book with Whitey Bulger. And ended that book with Whitey Bulger. He was sort of a framing device for the telling of that story. He represented the most recent, probably the last, really the last Irish-American gangster there, that there will ever be uh, was Whitey Bulger. And so I had been up to Boston over the years researching the Whitey Bulger story, cultivating sources in Boston so that when Bolger got arrested and went on trial, um, it was kind of a casting call, not only for Bolger and the criminals that would be testifying against him, uh, but for a lot of the writers who had been writing about the Bolger story for many years, because Bolger went on the run and, and was at large for 16 years, that story had a lot of legs. It, it continued for decades. So there was a lot to learn about the, the Whitey Bulger story, very complex, multi-layered story. Oh, I bet. Now, are, are we seeing the end of these types of, of mobs or mafias, you know, like the Irish or the Italian? Is, is, is that sort of um, come to an end? Yeah, I think that's came to an end uh, decades ago, to be, to, to be honest with you. The, the mafia was for all intents and purposes, structurally dismantled in the 1980s and 90s through federal, primarily through federal prosecutions using the RICO laws. Um, what aspect of it wasn't brought down in court, died out just through assimilation and evolutionary process of Italians and Irish and Jews becoming mainstream Americans and not really needing organized crime or gangs, or the mob as a means to get ahead in society. So that whole culture, which had been so vibrant in the 20th century, particularly since the era of prohibition in the 1920s, which really created the whole the whole structure of the American underworld as it existed for the next uh, uh, 80 or 90 years, had begun to wane, had begun to die out. But I, I should mention that um, that doesn't mean organized crime in America has diminished or dwindled. It's still very much alive. You still find corruption that's uh, um, 
uh, criminal rackets, such as narcotics, today would be the primary criminal racket, illegal drugs, fosters a world of corruption that facilitates the criminal world. And that's still very much alive today. It's a different ethnicity. It's a different set of players. You know, it's, 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 um, it's Mexican-American, it's Cuban, it's Dominican, it's Colombian. Uh, it's, it's a different, it's a different universe, different main criminal activity, different players, but a very similar structure to what has existed for the last, uh, close to a hundred years. But are the mobs different now? Like, is it, it like, you know, um, first of all, I, I look at the Italians who get most of the airplay on TV, get most of the, you know, most people think of uh, mafia as just Italian, not so much Irish or Jewish. Yes. Right. Well, that was always wrong, I think. I think that's always been a, a cultural misconception that hasn't been very fair to the Italians, by the way. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I would say. In, in terms of their role in the culture, the, the American underworld has always been an ethnic melting pot it is one of it has always been one of the most diverse aspects of american culture and again that goes back to to prohibition and the way prohibition was structured i mean everybody drank alcohol and so many different ethnicities had a hand in delivering that eagle had that illegal product to the marketplace and that created a a, a structure of italians and and Jews and, and Irish and Greeks and Germans um, working together. And uh, that's the way it was for a long period of time. But was that, you know, and I was thinking uh, what's changed, was it not also their way of of uh, assimilating or, or really getting into American society uh, differently than, yes. than now? Because now it's not really the thing they want. Yeah, it's it's so true. Um what changed it really had nothing to do with the criminal world. What changed it were sort of social evolutions taking place outside of the criminal world. For instance, uh, uh, commercial air flight. Um, you know, back in the 19th and early 20th century, for an immigrant to come to the United States was like getting into a spaceship and going into outer space. It was you were you were leaving everything behind. When immigrants came from those countries to the United States, it really was a, 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 a um, life-altering transformation. You were you were basically leaving your country to become an American. Today, it's so much easier to go back and forth between your country of origin and the United States that many immigrants now, not all, but many immigrants who come to the United States live a by bi-coastal, bi-continent existence, and they don't lose their identity of the home country in the way that you did then, and you're able to feel as though you are a part of both cultures, and you're not as inclined to be driven by this uh, desire to completely and totally assimilate. Yeah, I'd imagine, because if you, you immigrated here in 1880 or 1910 or 20, you were coming here for good. That, that wasn't like a. It is today. You can't just fly all over the place. Yeah, and for instance, so what happened is you had in those communities, Irish, Italian, Jewish. Um, you had members of the same family. You know, one might have been a cop, one might have been a gangster, one might have been a priest. You had uh, a process of 
immigration that involved different members of one family becoming involved in dis- different institutional areas of employment and careers in the United States. And that led sometimes to a type of corruption. Uh, it's possible. I mean, we're, we're here to talk about Whitey Bulger. Whitey Bulger's brother, Billy Bulger, was the most powerful politician in the state of Massachusetts, president of the Massachusetts State Senate. That was a throwback to the days of the mob back in the early part of the 20th century when that would be very common, that you would have that within one family. And so that's when I talk about organized crime and I write about organized crime, I'm really talking about the point at which the underworld and the upper world intersects. That is what makes organized crime functional. And that's why it's so deeply rooted in American culture. And it has passed from generation to generation and remained steadfast, even when the ethnic face of it uh, does change. I wonder, do you think that's why, like people kind of idolize um, these types of gangsters, right? Like it's not... It's not a worship, but it's kind of a, like, you know, the Sopranos. It was like, a, it's it's celebrated. Al Capone, like all of these gangsters, um, Bonnie and Clyde, all the all these people that were involved in this sort of lifestyle, is it because it was really kind of, um, I don't know, Robin Hood, or it's kind of like a protector, a helper of the community at the same time they do things wrong? It can be all of those things. Um, I mean, we find it fascinating. Some people idolize. Um, I'm not sure everyone does. I think you can find these stories riveting and fascinating without idolizing them. And, and certainly I hope and feel that I write about them because they're amazing uh, life stories to be told. Not necessarily, I don't necessarily mean to... Uh, idolize or promote it or glorify it. Um, it just happens to be a fascinating aspect of the of the American process. I think part of it is quite obvious. People are fascinated by somebody going over to the other side of the law and taking matters into their own hands. And if there's a point of identification there, it's often around the concept of business. You know, I've interviewed a lot of criminals from different ethnicities over the decades and most of them you ask them what they do for a living they'll they'll tell you they're a businessman that they're a businessman that's how gangsters see themselves um organized crime is the undertaking of business it's done illegally so you're operating in a world where you're on the other side of the law laws are being broken and violence is used uh, you're often uh in the criminal world is distinguished by people taking matters into their own hands in ways that are quite fascinating to those of us who can't do that. So I think part of the the attraction that these stories have to people is, you know, it's some guy who's all his life run a business or done things the legal way and dealt with all the frustrations that are involved in that. And here's this gangster story of, you know, in the movie, the guy would be played by Joe Pesci, who bursts in the door and grabs somebody by the collar and takes matters into their own hands. It does have a certain vicarious thrill for those of us who live uh, and operate by the straight and narrow. Yeah, yeah. And and idolize, I sort of mean in the sense that um, 
they looked up. It, it was a good opportunity. How do I say this? Back then, especially, um, it would be a better opportunity to become part of the mafia than a job in a lot of cases. Well, certainly financially, yes. I mean, uh, the story of ethnic groups coming to the United States and trying to make their way here are, are you, is usually the story of ethnic groups coming here and being met with all kinds of resistance, uh, being the bottom rung on the ladder and all that that involves. And so the criminal world, gangs, organized crime becomes a way that ethnic groups move up in the world. And that does uh, become idolized within the communities themselves um, to a certain extent. Although, you know, in all of these ethnic worlds, it usually starts out with those gangs preying on their own, uh, taking advantage of their own, the Sicilian black hand who would uh, extort businesses within the Italian-American community, right up into Chinese gangs in the 1970s and 80s that would wreak havoc on mostly on Chinese businesses within Chinatown. Um, that's the way organized crime was. But it's almost become part of the myth, American mythology, this idea that uh, within certain organized crime um, ethnic communities that, that gangs and gangsters and mobsters play a role in, in taking care of their own and, and moving things forward for their own and being part of the advancement of, of, their, of that ethnic group. There's a certain amount of truth in it, and there's also a certain amount of mythology in it. Right. Yeah, it gets blown up. Now, now Whitey Bulger, he, he was quite a character. Um, were you surprised, actually, that he was killed within that first day getting moved to the new prison? Um, well, the fact that his life ended in the way that it did was not a surprise. Uh, most people probably felt that's the way it would end or even that it should end. There was some kind of poetic justice to Whitey Bulger going out that way. And, um, I think that might've contributed to the circumstances of his death, why he was moved there. I'm, the, the big question about this hit, this murder is, why was Whitey Bulger moved into this prison and put into general population where in all likelihood he, he was going to meet that kind of result? He had a lot of enemies. Um, up until that point, he'd been in prison for 15 years and they'd been keeping him in isolated lockup. So the decision was made to completely leave him exposed. To me, uh, it looks like and feels a lot like a state-sanctioned murder that he was moved there to be murdered. Um, I don't think we'll probably ever get the truth of it because the Bureau of Prisons is a federal bureaucracy that doesn't really have to answer to the public. So they will just say no comment to questions about the circumstances of this murder. But uh, I think it's possible that he was set up to be murdered, that he was moved there to be murdered. So you think it was long time coming? Like it, it's somewhere back in in time, and someone that's in the right place at the right time in the uh, in the prison system was able to manipulate this. Um, yes, uh, in in I think that there were hitmen there, ready and waiting for him, and had been had taken on that assignment, and been given that assignment, and taken on that assignment, 
and that that assignment was facilitated by someone in the criminal justice system who made the decision to have him move there, and then those who authorized the move. For a federal prison prisoner to be moved from one prison to another involves a, a process of um, authorization in the Bureau of Prisons, and also it's my understanding that the FBI signs off on that and the Attorney General. Um, so that move was authorized by a lot of people. And even a casual observer of the situation would know that moving Whitey Bulger to general population, to a prison, by the way, that um, from what we've been learning has a history of violence, was understaffed. There have been a number of violent incidents at this prison in the last 12 months. So it's pretty baffling. But I think most people feel Whitey Bulger got what he deserved, so you're not going to find a lot of people upset about it or even questioning it. Right, yeah. Now, he was 89 years old. Now, also what I hear, he was in a wheelchair, so he, yeah. wasn't, he wasn't, like, real physically fit. Well, uh, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, they had to wait until that guy was completely incapable of defending himself before they could kill him. Maybe that's a testament to the fierce reputation of Whitey Bulger. Um, but the other thing that's so curious about that to me is he probably, he had a bad heart. He probably would have been dead in six to 12 months from his heart condition. They could easily have, if they wanted to, this guy could have been allowed to die of natural causes. I think the main reason he was murdered was that it was an affront to people in the criminal world and also to many people in the on the criminal justice side, it was an affront to them that Whitey Bulger would die of natural causes. And so somebody took matters into their own hands. There certainly was no compelling reason for him to be murdered other than just revenge. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and the way, uh, I mean, with the with the eyes uh, gouged out and the tongue, tongue was cut and uh, he was beaten with a wrapped... Uh, lock or like a wrap sock with a lock in it or something. Yeah. So, th- so sounds that was... like a. Yeah, it sounds. Well, that was all because he was a snitch. And the Whitey Bulger, uh, aside from being or along with being a powerful organized crime figure out on the streets, who had a reign of power in Boston for close to twenty years, he was an informant for the FBI, unbeknownst to anybody at the time. This is things that we found out about Whitey Bulger after he went on the run. Um, he had this privileged relationship with the FBI in particular and was enabled and protected to a large extent by the criminal justice system. And it was believed that he particularly was feeding the FBI information about the mafia, about Italians in the New England area. So, yes, he, he he had a long enemies list, Whitey Bulger, by the time he was caught. There were all the criminals that he snitched on and then all the people in the criminal justice system who were caused a great deal of embarrassment and shame after it was revealed that Bulger had actually been working for the government while he was out there killing people and committing his crimes. So that's interesting. So now, so the, the FBI was letting him do his deeds like he he mm-hmm. killed he killed what at least 19 probably i, I don't know he the killed time. he killed two young women with his bare hands strangled them to death 
Um, they weren't they weren't even criminals. Yeah, he he killed for a long time over a long period of time, and it got to the point where he and his partner Steve Fleming, who was also an informant for the FBI, they had killed so many people and gotten away with it that they started to have delusions of grandeur and started doing killings that really didn't have that much to do with business. They were just, I think, doing them because they knew that they could do it and get away with it. So what what stopped? What changed to create it where the FBI all of a sudden decided, well, enough, you know? We're, well, we're, well they ne the FBI never did decide that. <laughs> what oh. <laughs> happened was Bulger's handler was a guy named John Connolly, who was also from South Boston, the... the the legend is they knew each other from childhood and later in life, Connolly reached out to Bolger and made the proposition that he be his uh, top echelon informant. That's what they call it within the FBI. And he's going to sign Bolger on as an informant. And it was a tremendous feather in the cap of John Connolly. His career went through the roof and uh, they made some big cases against the mafia in the following years. And John Connolly got a lot of credit for those cases and this relationship went on for 20 years and it was only in 1994 i believe it was 94 95 john Connolly retired after uh 20 plus years in the bureau and when he retired whitey bulger was closed out as an informant at that point and that made whitey bulger vulnerable and in fact Another law enforcement agency, the DEA and the Massachusetts State Police were building a case against Bolger and they were ready to come after him. And John Connolly, even though he was recently retired, he had a lot of contacts in the criminal justice world. He got wind of the fact that this uh, investigation was coming to a head and the arrests were about to go down. And he tipped off Whitey Bolger and Whitey Bolger went on the run and that's how that happened, and Whitey Bulger remained on the run for 16 years. The theory was that the FBI really didn't want to find him because uh, of the embarrassment it was that it started now to come out that Whitey Bulger had been an informant all those years, and it was really quite a scandal. It was a huge scandal um, that rocked the criminal justice system in New England in particular, for the next, uh, well, however many years until they did finally catch Bolger and put him on trial. So now, did anybody in the FBI pay for having him as an informant? As in, did they did they end up in prison or or um, in trouble themselves? John Connolly's in prison for life. He's never going to get out. He was found guilty of facilitating one of the murders that Bolger and Fleming committed. Um, and he was put on trial in the state of Florida where that murder took place, and he's never getting out. I interviewed him by phone a few years ago while he was in prison and got his side of the story. I think in some ways Connolly is certainly guilty, but he also was used as a scapegoat. When the time came that um, someone would take the blame for this Folger relationship, it was all put on Connolly. And the truth is, what Connolly was doing was authorized by everyone within the chain of command over the years. Different supervisors came and went, and they all signed off on this Bulger relationship. And there were a lot of things about the Bulger relationship that had a bad stink to it. There were some good agents and some good cops out there that smelled a rat and felt this guy Bulger 
was out here killing people, committing crimes, but that you couldn't touch him. You couldn't make a case against him. When other agencies tried to make a case against Bolger, the FBI sabotaged it. They actually sabotaged the case. The organized crime squad in the Boston office of the FBI was Bolger's protector. And other uh, officers from other agencies would complain about it. They would go to the Justice Department and complain about it. And there were a number of times where there were major sit-downs between the different the different uh, agencies involved, but it was felt in very secretly within the higher echelons of the Justice Department that Bolger was a valued informant, that he was giving them information that was allowing them to make some big cases against the mafia. And there's some discussion, actually difference of opinion as to whether or not Bolger was the one providing that information. It's more likely that it was coming from Steve Fleming and Bolger was being given credit for, for that information, and Connolly was making sure that happened. But the the supervisors within the bureaucracy defended and protected Bolger over the years, and that's the real scandal. And to me, the, the book I wrote, Where the Bodies Were Buried, is really about that. It's not so much about Whitey Bolger. A number of books had been written about Whitey Bolger already by the time I wrote mine, but I felt what really hadn't been dealt with was the way the ways in which the system enabled Whitey Bulger, um, the, the ways in which the system gave Whitey Bulger his power, made him the powerful criminal out on the street and in the underworld that he was. Now, do you think Whitey Bulger was one of a kind in the sense that um, it, 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 it was only him, that the FBI wasn't doing this with other people as well? Oh, they're doing it with hundreds of people. Uh, right. They're doing it all... Every state in the United States has versions of this arrangement. It could be in the Midwest with an informant that's inside inside some white supremacist organization. It could be in the Southwest with a Chicano gang member. It could be anywhere. It's used. The use of informants is uh, pervasive in American law enforcement, and it exists at every level from local police departments up to federal agencies like the DEA and the FBI. It's been glorified in movies to the point where people in law enforcement believe that it's daring to use informants in this way. And agents who have this particular skill of cultivating informants and using informants rise high in their in their worlds through, through the use of it. Um, the dark side of it is is these relationships often go bad, that the relation, that the criminal plays the agent, that the criminal has street smarts and is more attuned to the ways of the criminal world than the agent is, and that the agent gets played. And um, there's also corruption within these relationships quite often, uh, payments, money, gifts. Um, it's a dark area, dark area of the criminal justice system that operates in this country every day at every level yeah, now and so when you say that that is happening in every agency at different levels um, and how do they because like, Whitey Bulger was out killing people and yes he was now so there's other now are all of these informants committing acts 
that are unlawful, or, or are they just pretending? Like, how do we know? No, quite quite a few of them are. Um, the I, the theory behind use of informants is to get someone who's at a level of the organization that they have privy to a lot of things about the organization, but they're not at the top. An informant is used uh, usually to bring down someone above them in the organization. Um, one of the flaws with Bolger was that he was a boss of a criminal organization, and that's it. That's a no-no within law enforcement uh, to, to forge that kind of relationship with a boss because, of course, that guy is going to manipulate that situation to the advantage of his organization. So you try to get someone who's a little lower on the pecking order um, to bring down the upper echelons of the organization. And, yes, uh, most of the time it's criminals, people who are in that criminal world. I can't tell you the n- number of criminal trials I've sat through in my years as a, as a writer in this area uh, in which the main witness in the trial against the gang is someone who was in the gang. Um, I've written a number of books uh, based on this concept where I've been able to get to that person who became the informant against the gang and and uh, they become a main source for me as a writer, and I tell the story from their from their point of view. Um, it's a very common thing. Um, you do also have occasionally instances of people faking it, you know, who are used to penetrate an organization, and they are not criminals. But it's just as common that actual criminals are used, and they're they're told that they can't kill people while they're out there, and they can't engage in criminal activity while they're operating as an informant, but that's all kind of a charade. It's a dark area, gray area that gets violated all the time. Wow. Uh, Now, Whitey Bulger was an Irish-American gangster, and um, we quite often, like I said, on TV, and uh, everything is all aimed at the Italian. What is the difference between the Irish and American and the Italian, other than, of course, where they're from? Like, do they operate the same? Are they the, were they at the same level, the same strengths? Did they hate each other? What was kind of the the plat the platform here? Right. Uh, well, I've written quite a bit about that. Um, I'll start by by explaining what's unique about the mafia and and why the mafia is sort of separate from other uh, ethnicities in the landscape of American crime history. The mafia was a criminal tradition that began in Sicily and was brought to the United States, and it was a cultural tradition, not not only criminal, but also just sort of a tradition of communal uh, organization that existed in and was greatly revered and respected in Italy by some, and and brought to the United States, and that tradition was preserved within Italian-American communities in the United States, and it was quite powerful, and it laid the foundation for a criminal path for Italians in America that was unique. Others, like the Irish and the Jews and many others, Greeks and Germans, and others that came later in the 20th century, were part of a larger uh, criminal world uh, in which they functioned alongside the mafia and also and often with the mafia 
uh, in criminal activities, um, but were free to organize things within their ethnic communities in their own way. The Irish had many characteristics that were kind of unique to them. Part of it was the connection of politics. From the very beginning, the Irish, part of their process of becoming American was to be involved in politics. The ward boss, the political boss in cities like uh, New York and Chicago and Boston and Philadelphia, um, where they became prominent players within the political structure and 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 also were oftentimes, as I mentioned before, in the same family, they might have a brother who was a, a gangster in the criminal world. And so the uh, intersection of the of the political realm and the street crime realm was very common in the the Irish mob, what became known as the Irish mob, and also some other characteristics, a labor involvement in organized labor organized labor corruption there was often an irish flavor to that law enforcement sometimes um corruption within law enforcement um law enforcement figures cops a lot of irish became cops and all of a sudden again within the same family you might find yourself with a cop and a gangster so the 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 intersecting of social institutions was a was a prominent part of the the irish mob they didn't have a something like the mafia where you took an oath when you joined, you pricked your finger and dropped some blood and said a prayer. They didn't have anything like that. It wasn't a, a secret society. Um, it was, it was looser than that, but it had, if you, if you studied it as I did in the book, Paddywhack, you start to see that there are characteristics that are the same in Chicago and in Boston and in New York and some other places that, that, led me to the conclusion that it was somewhat of a structured underworld, and at least there were ways of doing business within the Irish-American underworld that were quite similar in these different cities. And that story, the story of the Irish mob, is at, is at the root of the development of our, our big American cities, um, the ones in the Northeast, but also in the Midwest, like Kansas City, a certain kind of uh, rough-and-tumble politics, and business that existed in these cities that were part of the growth and development of these cities that were very much influenced by the characteristics of Irish organized crime, the Irish mob. Mm. So now, um, Whitey Bulger, um, how did he get involved? Well, Whitey Bulger, you know, was a throwback. We're, when we talk about Whitey Bulger, we're talking about a story that, you know, existed in recent times. And Bulger's just murdered last month. He His reign in Boston was in the 80s into the 90, 1990s. This is not early 20th century stuff, you know. This is uh, uh, contemporary. And so, and within the Bulger story, as I mentioned, his relationship with his brother, you, you see all the characteristics that existed in the story of Irish, the Irish mob going back a hundred years. So it was kind of a throwback to an earlier time than, and unusual that Bulger existed as long as he did. Part of that was the nature of Boston being a very Irish city. Bulger inherited these criminal rackets and traditions that had existed in that city going back at least to the prohibition era and before 
and I mean the concept of a of a neighborhood mob boss, a guy who any if you were to open any kind of criminal activity in your neighborhood, a, a late night gambling place, if you were to sell swag, stolen property in your neighborhood, if you were to sell narcotics in your neighborhood, Whitey Bulger got a piece of all that. Um, anything that took place within his domain he got a piece of, you know, that was a throwback to an earlier type of organized crime tradition by the 1980s and 90s. Most of that, a lot of that had died out in American cities, or at least it had been taken up by more recently arrived immigrant groups that were now playing that game. Bolger sounded like a character out of a Jimmy Cagney gangster movie from the 1930s. He, uh, had a sense of himself, a self-identity as a criminal boss, a gangster like that. He he started out very young in life as a bank robber. And he, in fact, he got arrested in, in Indiana, the state of Indiana back in the late 50s during a bank robbery. He was heading out into the great American landscape doing bank robberies and got ca- caught and wound up in prison served a long stretch in prison in the 60s, nine years. Um, in prison, this is going to blow your mind, in prison, um, he submitted to a secret CIA testing program called MKUltra, oh. where the CIA fed uh, LSD to inmates to test the results of inmates. The CIA was exploring the use of LSD as a mind-controlling drug, something they could use in the Cold War. And they had a program in which they were going to test it on prison inmates, and they'd get some time knocked off their sentence if they submitted to this program. And Whitey Bulger was one of not many, a couple hundred inmates who submitted to this program, and he he was dosed with LSD on a daily basis for about 15 months and tested to see what the results of that were on him. And he got some time knocked off his sentence because of it and came back out on the streets in the 70s, early 70s, back to Boston, and had no intention of um, going straight, got right back into the criminal world. But now rather than being an aimless bank robber, he realized that he needed to be more grounded and in a more structured criminal world and he became a member of a gang called the Winter Hill Gang in Boston that was quite powerful. And uh, he was just a, uh, one of many member, members of that organization, but he used that organization as a way to consolidate his power and eventually formed this relationship with John Connolly and the FBI in the mid-1970s that really gave him an inside track or an inside edge on how to manipulate the criminal universe that he was a part of. And he proceeded to do that over the next 20 years in such a way that um, by the early 1990s, he was the king of the hill and had been the king of the hill for, for quite a while. Did he become a drug addict because of that, the LSD? No, he did not. Um, Whitey Bulger was a very... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Almost an ascetic personality. He didn't drink much. He didn't use drugs. He didn't want members of his organization using drugs. The LSD thing, though, did have a profound impact on him. And then later, when he was finally captured and put on trial, there was some 
uh, thought uh, given to that he might be using, he would use it as a defense in his criminal case and say that he was, he was, uh, he was ruined uh, by his, by, he was damaged, irreparably damaged. He did always complain over the years that it had created problems, that he had tremendous headaches, that he had insomnia, that he was given to bouts of rage and loss of temper. Um, there may have been effects. There may have been consequences from that use of LSD that we'll never fully know about. Of course, that was a highly secretive program, MK Ultra. Nothing was known about that program until decades after, after it took place, uh, until the late, I believe it came out in maybe the late 1970s or 1980s that that program ever even existed and the FBI admitted that it did exist. I mean, the CIA, not the FBI. Yeah, yeah. Now, what was his total uh, murder count, or do we know? Like, what? What, what he is was charged. Part? He was charged with nineteen. He was found guilty of eleven of those murders. But the amazing thing about the Bolger story is the two main witnesses against him, who had been members of his gang, his partner Steve Fleming, and another uh, gangster by the name of John Martirano. John Martirano admitted to twenty-one murders. Steve Flemmy admitted to 11 murders. Whitey Bolger was found guilty of 11 murders. That's a lot of murders. Yeah. That's a lot of murders that was taking place in the Boston underworld in the late 60s, 70s, and into the 80s. And a good portion of these murders were committed by criminals who were operating within a special relationship as informants for the FBI. Wow. So is so the FBI was aware of a lot of these murders then? Yes. Yeah, they covered up they covered up for him. One of them that's truly scandalous, uh, involved a gangster by the name of Joe Barboza. Before Bolger was in power, the most notorious criminal in New England was named Joe Barboza. And Joe Barboza, unbeknownst to anyone on the street, was the FBI's very first informant of that level. Um, Hoover had been embarrassed by the testimony of Joe Valachi. This is going way back, but people of a certain age might remember this, and it's very important history. Joe Valachi was a the first mafiosi to te- testify publicly. Attorney General Bobby Kennedy got this guy to do it, and they had a public testimony, and it was televised live on American television and it was a huge sensation. This was in 19, early 1963. And up to that point, J. Edgar Hoover had been denying there was such a thing as the mafia in the United States. And all of a sudden, not only here it is proof that there's a mafia, but this guy's spilling the beans. He's telling the full story about the initiation rights and the structure of the mafia. And Hoover was embarrassed by it. And he... Uh, went about creating his own program of getting high-level and using high-level informants. And he created this top echelon informant program. And one of the first, if not the first, they signed up for this was Joe Barboza. And Joe Barboza was was a thug and a killer. And Joe Barboza proceeded to commit crimes, one of them uh, a heist in which a couple of people got killed and Barbo- then it was revealed that Barboza was an informant, and Barboza took the stand and testified 
as to who did the crime. And what we didn't, no one could have known at that time, but we found out many decades later was Barboza fingered two people who were not guilty. And they were found guilty of the murders and put away for life. And the FBI handlers in that case knew at a certain point that Joe Barboza was lying. But in the interest of protecting this highly valued informant and witness, they allowed this lie to take place. It's an incredible scandal. Um, you can do Google research on it. It did all eventually come out in the wash. It came out in the wash, by the way, when Bolger went on the run. And they began to investigate his relationship with the FBI and all the, the dirt uh, going back decades started to rise to the surface. And one aspect of the dirt that rose to the surface was this Joe Barboza story. And what that showed was that this corrupt relationship between the criminal justice system and certain criminals that they were using as informants existed before Whitey Bulger was even on the scene. And in fact, some of those agents, the two agents that handled Barboza were mentors to John Connolly and the FBI. John Connolly learned what he knew as a handler from what he had learned from those agents. So there was a continuity of corruption and nefarious use of informants in that jurisdiction that went back close to half a century. And Whitey Bulger was just a part of that story. Just an amazing history. Now, now, what we get out of... Um Hollywood and and different uh, uh, shows, movies, and programs and stuff about uh, mob, which is usually, like I said, Italian. Now, d do most of those hold true as in the standards that they have, the way they behave on those programs, or is it pretty... Um... Well, it's a mixed bag. It's a pretty mixed bag. I mean, a movie like Goodfellas, I think, is probably sets the standard in terms of realism in, in capturing what that world is like and what the people who live in that world are like. Um, some are, are great movies, but are romanticized versions of it, like the Godfather movies, which, you know, are Godfather 2 is probably my favorite movie of all time. But... That's a very romantic, the, the Godfather sagas are a very romanticized version of it. It's some idea that it's all built on nobility and uh, doing the right thing and all of that. Um, you know, that that leader is some sort of noble figure with all kinds of uh, attractive um, leadership qualities. And that can be true. I mean, Whitey Bulger, in fact, uh, had some admirable leadership qualities. You know, I mentioned that he was not a drug user. He was a serious minded guy. He, he read books. He, he, he had a sense of himself, um, uh, uh, as being disciplined. He was a, he was a health nut. He kept himself in really good shape. Um, if Whitey Bulger had chosen another Avenue in life, he probably would have been successful at it in some way. Uh, he cho chose the criminal world. Um, yeah, in terms of movies and, and books and popular culture, there's some good ones and there's some bad ones. It's a, it's an, it's a narrative that's easy to sensationalize 
and does often get sensationalized. But then, you know, in the work that I've done, you come across a story like the story of Whitey Bolger. I mean, you couldn't make up a lot of aspects of this story. The thing that always strikes me about the criminal world in the United States is you don't have to fictionalize much to come across stories that are just like larger than life or or hard to believe or or defy belief in the characteristics of the story. Um, the Bolger story, as I was just mentioning it to you, the the scope of the corruption, the corruption getting passed on from generation to generation. Um, to me, that's a vastly superior story narrative than a lot of what gets passed off as as real life crime stories you know, on television and in movies. Mm. I bet. So uh, now, how do people get a hold of you? You have a website. Uh, it's uh, called what? TJ English Online? Yeah, TJ English. Uh, I have a website. I mean, you can just Google the name TJ English and you'll get a lot of information. I've published uh, eight books on different aspects of the, of the criminal life, the criminal world, the criminal justice system. I did a trilogy of books about the Irish. The Irish Mob. Um, I'm in the midst of doing a, a trilogy of books on Cuban. The Cuban wrote a book about the mob in, in Havana, Cuba in the 1950s, how they turned that into sort of a paradise for themselves until Fidel Castro and the revolution came along and spoiled the party. Uh, I've written about a Vietnamese gang in Chinatown in, in New York. I've come at this aspect from a lot of different angles both historical and contemporary. Uh, it seems to be an inexhaustible topic in the yeah. United States. <laughs> sure, sure does. Well, again, our guest has been uh, T.J. English. Thank you very much for being here. Thanks for having me. It's rare that you, we get an opportunity to talk about this at length and in depth, so I appreciate that. Thank you. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.